0: An unexpected story out of the so called hot labor summer. Strippers United will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: For the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez. Some LA County businesses have not been able to survive the pandemic. That means buildings they once occupied are not being used at all. Supervisor Catherine Barger has an idea that would put them to use by putting those roofs over people's head. Plus, imagine a future where you swipe your phone to get on a plane. No, not for your boarding pass, but for your vaccine passport. It's all ahead on take two.
2: Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop and play.
1: From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I mean, Martinez, thanks for being with us. All right. So coming up, what exactly is a vaccine passport? It's a basic
2: verification that someone has had vaccination or potentially even has Positive antibodies from prior infection.
1: All right, but what form these things will actually take and whether they'll be used in the U.S., that is still a little up in the air. We're going to get into that just ahead. But first, to a proposal that could address LA County's housing crisis. Last week, the Board of Supervisors approved a motion to explore the use of commercial property left vacant by the pandemic for affordable housing or temporary units for the unhoused. The measure was introduced by Supervisors Hilda Solis and Catherine Barger. Supervisor Barger, welcome back to Take Two.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Sure. Now, before we get into the why and the how of this proposal, uh, could you lay out your vision for this? Uh, what types of properties would be used and, and how ultimately might this uh, affordable housing take shape?
3: Well, as as you just mentioned, commercial real estate is facing truly an uncertain future. And with many seeing extremely high vacancy rates and, un, and an, um, an unknown future. I mean, for example, we know that telework uh, for many industries now, is being looked at as a viable option, which means you're going to have a lot of empty space, especially downtown and a lot along our transit uh, lines. So the motion that was brought in by Suarez Solis and I is for us to explore opportunities for us to use some of this uh, possibly for um, temporary shelter, long-term affordable housing, or even market rate housing, um, because we know that that is the key issue as it relates to um, the homeless on the street, that we, we have a lack of housing, especially affordable housing.
1: Is it uh, office building type buildings or is it restaurants? Uh, what what kind of buildings are you, are you thinking about?
3: Well, you know, I mean, I'm leaving it open in the mm. motion to look at it all because at the end of the day, I think that um, as COVID-19 um, has played out, we've seen businesses close. but We've also seen businesses reinvent themselves. So we want to leave it open and let um, the county look at it. And I know that the Rand Institute is also looking at developing strategies moving forward. So we're asking that we part, we're asking um, our department to partner with them to pick their brain and see what options are, are available. Cause you know, we've got multi housing and um, multi-use housing in different parts of the county where you've got markets on the bottom housing above. So we're looking at any opportunity to redevelop and and rethink how we provide housing in LA County.
1: Would this be a long-term housing or would short-term shelters be in the mix as well?
3: Well, we, we need a stratification of different housing types, so it's not a one size fits all. We're looking at uh, you know the short term, but also long term, as well as um, at market. I mean, I think you can have a balance across the board. Why this approach, Supervisor? I think because you you know when we when we talk about COVID, we look at all the negative, but we also have to look at the opportunities, and and obviously the the hardship it's had on businesses that have shut down is not something that I want to take advantage of. But in this case. One of the things, and I've had many, many companies come to me and say, we are rethinking how we are going to reopen. And we've realized that in some cases, uh, productivity is up by allowing our workers to stay at home. They don't have to, to fight the traffic on the freeway. And for some of them, especially with the schools being closed for so long, childcare becomes an issue. So they're rethinking how they are going to reopen when, um, when the restrictions are lifted. And some of them have felt that they don't need the office space and they would rather allow their employees To work from home recognizing that it's more efficient for them so we're looking at those opportunities as well because if there's vacancies we want to take advantage help help those businesses or those uh, real estate agents that own the buildings but also look at opportunities to address the housing shortage in la county
1: and that's what i was going to ask you about the businesses that maybe own these buildings would they have a lot more authority in how their building was used uh, under your plan
3: Well, I would hope they would be partners with us because I mean, you know, I think that 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 having the ability to have um, uh, income coming in uh, would be something that would be uh, exciting for them, given the fact that occupancy rate on the commercial side is probably going to go up. And this is a way for them to reevaluate their their business model and see if this is an opportunity for them to partner with not the county, but with a private industry to put together housing in an area that is of great need in LA County. I mean, you look at what the state is requiring of Southern California in terms of putting housing online. And in LA County alone, we've got a huge number that we have to provide in terms of new housing. And so this is another opportunity for us to explore and see if this is a way for us to do that.
1: Now, in your proposal, you cite a study out of UC Berkeley, the uh, added economic benefits of building homes and mixed use units on how these uh, now vacant properties, what did that uh, study find?
3: Well, I mean, the study actually it shows that that there are opportunities because when you look at when the, when there was a big boom when we were opening up the Gold Line, the Expo Line, building on transit corridors, um, uh, it was something that um, that was a win-win because you get people out of their cars, you allow them access to uh, public transportation, and also uh, markets and all that are local, so they don't they don't depend upon their cars and and get rid of the automobiles and the producing the greenhouse gas emissions. So we're looking at at looking at that study and seeing if we can apply that to what we have here in L.A. County.
1: Talking to L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger. So is the idea that uh, this plan uh, could provide much needed housing and also if all goes according to your plan, it could also be an economic boost to areas that have been hurt uh, during the pandemic?
3: Yeah. And I mean, when you look at the rising cost of housing here in L.A. County, it also will help us address that issue, because I truly do believe supply and demand and the more housing we put online, um, the more competitive rents can be. and, And ideally, we bring down the cost of housing and allow people to get into shelter, many of whom are may not necessarily be homeless, but maybe couch surfing and now will have a place to call home
1: well since you brought up uh, housing affordable housing in the county what is the need for la county when it comes to providing affordable housing and how is the county doing so far at reaching a uh, a goal
3: well even with covid we have not seen the rents uh, go down in fact if anything in some cases they've gone up and even the cost of housing has gone up so we know that in la county we have a lot of work to do and rent control alone is not going to solve that problem if anything I believe it exacerbates it because you don't have um, uh, additional uh, openings for uh, apartments to sublet. And so uh, for me, I think that we need to work hand in hand to bring more housing online in a way that that makes sense to communities. And along transit lines does make sense, because if you're getting them off the road and 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 uh, using our transit, you're not. You're not uh, creating more traffic. So I think that we have opportunities here to work with all of our 88 cities to address this issue, especially because we all know, whether it be L.A. City or even in the Antelope Valley, which um, the cost of housing up there has gone up tremendously. um, We need to do more to have affordable housing for people in need.
1: And what's at stake, Supervisor, if uh, the county cannot get there?
3: Well, what's at stake is what you see happening, um, more and more people uh, becoming homeless and actually more and more people moving out of the region. And, um, you know, we want to offer, um, we've got the jobs, we just need to have the housing. And so I, I think that the goal is to provide an incentive for individuals to stay here, work here, raise their families here. And, and so I think that the downside is if we don't do it, we're going to have more people on the street. We're going to lose people to, to other regions the upside is we provide the housing, we create more economic opportunities and um, create for the next generation.
1: So the big question, Supervisor, is how this might work. First off, if the plan is to turn commercial property into residential, what has to change with zoning?
3: Well, and, and that's why, you know, I, I you have to include the 88 cities because each city has their own rules surrounding zoning. I mean, you know, in unincorporated areas, the Board of Supervisors oversees the zoning Um, Statutes as it relates to what can and cannot happen. So it's coordinating and working with the cities. But in in the situation of, for example, downtown L.A., where there may be opportunities, we work closely with L.A. City to look at what may need to be rezoned and what may not need to be rezoned. Because as you and I both know, in downtown L.A., you do have apartments on top of um, uh, uh, businesses below. And so I think that there are opportunities to even revisit that.
1: What happens, though, if, say, a city uh, in the 88 cities decides, no, I, I don't like this, I, I don't want to do this, and they've got just buildings that are sitting there that could be used for something else? Will the county be able to apply pressure, or how would that kind of partnership or arrangement work?
3: You know, I, I'm old school. I like to work with my cities, and I think that <laughs> if we work cooperatively with them and we don't bring them in last minute and tell them, this is what you're going to do, um, we can come to up with some sort of compromise. Obviously, there are going to be those cities that that may not wanna do it and, and that is their choice. But at the end of the day, I have to say that when you look at empty buildings that are not being occupied, it turns into blight. And I think the last thing any city wants is to have blight within their community. And so this is an opportunity for them to build uh, around a community and to do something that is going to be beneficial um, not only to the individuals that are going to be living there, but also to their economic uh, stability.
1: What issues, though, uh, do you anticipate uh, that could arise if if you have a transformed residential property mixed and matched with a commercial property?
3: This is not going to be an easy lift. And I I acknowledge that. But if you don't try, um, shame on you. Um, To me, I think that we have a responsibility to look at all options as it relates to housing And again, it's not a one size fits all. And that's why we left it open in terms of whether it's going to be long term, affordable uh, at at market rate. Um, But I think that we owe it to the taxpayers to look at all opportunities um, as it relates to uh, working with different property owners to reuse and um, possibly use these for permanent Affordable housing,
1: because you know what we're hearing in the background right now, Supervisor. Those are NIMBYs who are who are pushing back already on this. So, so how do you how do you try and you know assuage their their concerns?
3: You're always going to have NIMBYs, and I know that in different cities, some cities feel like you know I gave it the I gave already. We've got plenty in our community. Um, what I would say is the state has given Southern California a mandate in terms of how how much housing we have to put online. And that is a heavy lift, especially in the unincorporated areas. In my district alone in Altadena the mandate up there is for, I think, 400 and some odd additional dwellings. Um, you know, that is a lot to ask for a community. But I think we need to work together to allow the communities to have input um, and recognize that uh, at the end of the day, again, I say that you, could, you can either leave it empty and have blight or work with us, put something together that's going to be a win-win, but it takes partnership and it takes communication and it takes transparency, some of which has been missing in government. They're asked to uh, uh, approve something after the fact. We want to bring them in at the ground floor. And that's why the motion is a report back in 90 days. And then when we get the list of underutilized commercial real estate properties, then we are going to work with each individual city and recognize that some may not want it. But at the end of the day, I think we we owe it to uh to our constituents to flush this out and see if it's going to work especially since the rand study and you know the berkeley study both show that this is an opportunity
1: now supervisor what happens if a business that was leasing their space but that were short forced to shut down because of government restrictions put in place what if they want to move back into those buildings would they get the first shot at doing that before the county moves ahead with something like this
3: Absolutely. I mean, as I stated at the beginning of this interview, um, you know, I I understand that there are those businesses because of the COVID-19 and because of the shutdowns um, have not been able to reopen. It is not my intent to push businesses out. If anything, this is more to to equalize for the areas where businesses are not coming back in. And and there are many industries where telework is going to be the future. And so this is an opportunity to, to have it be a win win for the leasing agents. But my intent is not to push businesses out. They'll have the first right of refusal. Pure and simple.
1: Yeah, because there's a difference, I think, supervisor, between businesses that own their business or their buildings, I should say, and the ones that are leasing a space that maybe are looking for a place to, to head back into if they can remain in business. So that's, that's one of those things that I think uh, it could be uh, something that uh, might be a problem down the road.
3: Absolutely. And, and again, if it were that easy, anyone could do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that the challenge is um, is to bring something together that's going to make sense and be a balance. But again, my intention is not to push businesses out. If anything, I want to get businesses back open. And I want I want uh, the, the economy to jumpstart and for us to move forward.
1: So if there's a city that is is just gung ho to do this, they, they want to be a part of this. Where will the money come to transform these commercial properties into residential ones?
3: So that will be part of the report back in 90 days. Obviously, the county has CARE Act's dollars. We've set aside money for affordable housing, um, recognizing that the homelessness issue in L.A. County is, is getting worse and um, that housing seems to be the one hurdle that we can't get over in terms of the, having enough housing to house those in need. And I'm talking about families. Um, and so I think that that we're going to look at all of our financial uh, uh, that with all the financial means that we have, including um, CDC funds from the federal dollars that, that may come in um, to help leverage with the private sector to put together something that's going to make sense and be sustainable long-term.
1: And Supervisor, while we have you here, I wanted to ask you about schools reopening. Today, uh, state lawmakers announced uh, a $2 billion deal to reopen K through second grade uh, learning by as early as April 1st. Uh, meanwhile, LAUSD officials announced that it has vaccines necessary to inoculate to uh, elementary school staff. Now with a possible timeline of reopening in mid-April, Supervisor, what's uh, what's your reaction to this news today?
3: Well, my reaction is, I mean, I wrote a letter to the governor two weeks ago. I don't think it goes far enough. I think we need to look at, at grades seven through 12. And uh, kids have been out of school for almost a year now. And when I, you know the CDC released the five strategies for state reopening, uh, mandatory vaccines was not required. I recognize that um, teachers want it, and I understand that. Um, but I think it is time for us to roll up our sleeves and figure out a way to get these kids back into school not only for the educational needs, but also for the social needs of these children. And so I wholeheartedly support the, the the agreement that was made, but I think we need to push the envelope and really look at the grades beyond second.
1: Now, because, you know, I ask this because throughout the last uh, few months, there have been some issues uh, in general with the county securing enough vaccines and then distributed them uh, properly. Mm-hmm. So where, where does the fault lie there and what's within your power to fix?
3: You know, that that I I actually thank you for asking that question, because I think people confuse it. The federal government provides the vaccine supply to the state who then uh, allocates it to various counties. I think the frustration with L.A. County is we have 10 million residents and we um, are spread out far and wide. Um, We've got the largest county, I think, in the state of California. As soon as we get the vaccine right now, we're at 92 percent of the vaccine that we have has been uh, has been allocated and put into people's arms. We don't have enough. This is a two, uh, two dose vaccine. So when we provide one vaccine for an individual, we in 28 days or 21 days, depending upon whether it's Pfizer or Moderna, want to make sure that we get the second injection in there. So we've been setting that aside. I think with Johnson & Johnson coming out, that is going to be a game changer. That is going to be something that I think will allow the county to truly cross the line as it relates to slowing the spread and actually preventing the spread um in la county and so i you know our goal is to get it out there not just at our super pods but we're we're working with our federally qualified health clinics community clinics we're also doing mobile units that are going out into hard uh, hard hit areas um, where people don't have access to transit Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to senior centers so we're rolling it out as soon as we get it Um, i appreciate the federal government coming in and putting uh, up a pod over at cal state la I also appreciate the fact that next week we're going to be putting up something with FEMA up in the Antelope Valley, which has been hardest hmm. hit um, and it's a real equity issue from my standpoint. So we are moving it as fast as we can, recognizing that early on, we did not want to spread ourselves too thin, recognizing we didn't have a lot of vaccine coming in. Um, But I hope the state will recognize that with 92 percent of the uh, vaccine being used, that we stand ready to inoculate as soon as we get the vaccine
1: all right, that's LA County Supervisor Katherine Barger. Supervisor, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm pretty sure we're all looking forward to a time when we can go to a concert, sporting event, or hop on a plane for a weekend getaway with total confidence that the person next to you is fully vaccinated just like you are. The reason? Well, the vaccine passport that you'd have to show at the gate in order to be there. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. Pause. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, I'm Amy Martinez. COVID-19 vaccination rates are slowly ticking up here in the U.S. as well as in certain countries around the world. And governments as well as businesses are increasingly looking for ways to tell who is immune and who is not. One idea that's been gaining some traction, a vaccine passport, certifications that would allow those who have been vaccinated to get back to a normal life. To find out more about how a vaccine passport might work, we reached out to David Stuttert professor of medicine and law at Stanford University, and he explained it this way. Well,
2: the basic idea comes from an intense desire to try to allow people to move about freely and mix and resume some semblance of normal life again. It's a basic verification that someone has had vaccination or potentially even has positive antibodies from prior infection. What actual physical form it will take is a little up in the air at the moment. Most of the early movers seem to be embracing some form of digital certification, like a barcode or a QR code that could be carried on someone's phone.
1: And just to be clear on this, Professor, I mean, we're not just talking about using it at airports. This passport could be used for a lot more than just traveling around.
2: Yeah, that's a big question at the moment, A, as to what it will be used for. I think it's fair to say that the leading edge of this right now is travel. European countries are very concerned about travel restrictions, and so they're looking closely at it because of the desire to allow people and goods to move more freely. The airline industry, International Air Travel Association, is also looking hard at this. But it's not confined to air travel or to other forms of travel, I think. The idea in some places that are moving ahead quickly, such as Israel, is that this will also be used to certify people's ability to attend concerts, to attend restaurants and bars, sporting events, and the potential uses are quite wide. You might think of all of the restrictions we currently have in different parts of the country and and the world as being amenable to modification based on this kind of certification.
1: So if this vaccine passport is going to be completely digital, are we going to have to worry about security? Because when I I think of digital, my mind goes to hackers and paper can't be hacked. Uh, we're a similar vintage, eh?
2: I feel the same <laughs> way. I think the reality is, though, that we do this a lot for other parts of our commerce and society, from credit cards to payment structures for our bills and so on. And there is always a concern about fraud and about hacking or unauthorized use of certification like this. But We seem to have done okay in other areas in developing ways of doing this safely. It's not to say that there won't be some of that kind of activity, but we have pretty good controls in e-commerce for dealing with this sort of thing. And I think that same technology would be applied in this area. In fact, there are rumors that some of the tech companies like Google and Apple are in discussions with businesses and with some governments about putting this into practice. So these are organizations that have a great deal of experience with trying to eliminate that kind of fraud and and misadventure.
1: We've read different opinions on this. Strong opinions for and against creating vaccine passports. So what's the pro side on this, say?
2: Well, the pro side is relatively simple. This is something that would allow us to move more quickly back to normalcy. And I think an ancillary benefit that people are talking about is that it may provide incentives for folks to get a shot at times when there is an up supply for you know, the general population to go ahead and do that. So, so that's the basic pro side. And I should add there that the idea of opening up more steadily and allowing people to resume their normal activities that's not necessarily in conflict with civil rights and liberties because we might think that as from a societal standpoint, if we're shutting people in when they don't actually pose a serious risk to society, then that's actually a form of restricting liberties and we should be concerned about that. If, vaccination passports or certifications allow us to steadily reduce those restrictions, then we might think about that as a good thing. So that's the pro side.
1: What about the cons when it comes to vaccine uh, passports?
2: Yeah, so already the concept is stoking quite a little bit of controversy. I would sort of divide the cons into sort of scientific concerns and ethical concerns. On the scientific side, we still have significant questions about whether people who have been vaccinated or have acquired positive antibodies through prior infection can still become infected and spread the virus so you can imagine that if that's not certain then we could get some false assurance and false hope out of these idea of, of certifications the ethical side is really coalescing around concerns about misuse of these programs for discrimination i think there are also concerns at the moment about the fact that not everyone has access to the vaccine Obviously, and until they do, that's going to be a kind of natural discrimination. People who got in first will have the ability to get this kind of certification. That will probably change, hopefully, by the summer when there's much wider availability of vaccines for adults in the United States. But then the ethical concerns are going to shift a little bit. Now, the focus will be cast on those who've refused or decided not to take up the vaccine. And there may be more of that in minority communities. So there are going to be concerns about disparity there.
1: We're speaking with David Stutter, professor of medicine and law at Stanford University, about the idea of vaccine passports. So, professor, any countries actually begun to implement vaccine passports already?
2: Yes, there are a bunch. So probably the furthest ahead is Israel. And part of the reason, I think, is that they are a country that has vaccinated the largest share of their population at this time, almost up to 50 percent in Israel. They've launched so-called green passports that allow people who are vaccinated to go to hotels, concerts and gyms, and they're looking to expand those permissions to be used in restaurants and hotels. In Israel, that's like a barcode that people carry on their phone and can flash at the door of these places. But there's plenty of other activity, Saudi Arabia, Iceland, several European countries like Denmark, Sweden, Hungary, Poland, they are at various stages of implementing programs. Australia is also moving forward with the government program. The Biden administration has directed government agencies to consider the feasibility of vaccine passport programs. The UK is doing a similar thing. And that's just all on the government side. On the private side, we see a fair bit of activity among airlines, cruise ship operators and increasingly private businesses thinking about how they will use these kinds of certifications to bring their operations back to normal.
1: Now, Professor, you actually conducted some polling on how Americans felt about this idea of vaccine passports. What did you find in your survey?
2: Well, we surveyed about 1,300 people who were representative, in a sense, of the U.S. population. And we found that support for immunity privileges, immunity passports programs, was really evenly divided. A very slight majority disfavored or opposed. These types of programs, but nearly half of the population appears to support them. And the interesting thing is the support doesn't really track the normal contours of support for government programs. We see conservatives and progressive about equally likely to support or oppose these programs. We don't see minorities more or less likely to support it. It's really just breaks along very hard-to-predict lines.
1: That is shocking to me, Professor, considering for the past year we've seen things like masks be politicized, highly partisan. Why is that?
2: It is surprising, A. Eh? It seems like division has been very sharp in the United States over the last year on almost every issue to do with the pandemic. But this is one where people don't seem to have settled into their usual camps. And I think that reflects the nuances of this issue. Progressive's immediate reaction, I think, is to be suspicious of any kind of program that's certified on the basis of health or fitness, because those kinds of programs have a very ugly history in the United States and Europe. They've been used for discriminatory purposes many times before. On the other hand, we have to think about who might benefit from such a program in the short term. And preferential access to vaccines is going to some extent to those frontline workers out there, many of the minorities who bore the brunt of the pandemic. So if it means that they can get out ahead of others in terms of privileges through these kinds of certification programs, that actually might be a thing that is attractive to progressives. There are not many examples of things at the moment that involve bus drivers taking precedence over bankers, but this might be one of them. For conservatives, I think there is Great reticence around the idea of a big government program that would regulate people's lives in these ways. On the other hand, no one is more interested in opening up the economy as quickly as possible. So it's a split issue for conservatives as well.
1: Maybe it's because it's not real yet yet in the US. And once it becomes real, maybe the opinions will start to form.
2: I think that's a good insight. This is a sort of pre political issue in a sense. There's so much else going on that I don't think the public's attention has focused on this, nor the political party's attention is focused on this. But once it becomes more real for Congress and the parties coalesce around particular positions, that could change.
1: Yeah, we're Americans. Give us a chance to be divisive. We will definitely take that opportunity. Now, <laughs> uh, Professor, looking forward, what impact do you think establishing vaccine passports uh, worldwide could have on how we just go about our daily lives? I mean, can we start seeing vaccine passports for other viruses becoming our new normal?
2: Well, in a sense, a eh, we already do in order to attend childcare or elementary school in the United States, we're required to show proof of certain vaccinations. In some states, healthcare workers are required to show proof of certain vaccination before they can treat patients with certain illnesses. So this is already happening. What's different about this is it's just such a grand scale. We're talking about the entire population. But I do think we're headed to a future in which there are going to be certain social privileges that are dependent on proof of vaccination or potentially prior infection. I think it's just hard to avoid that reality. Now, I don't know what that will look like. Is that an ability not to be tested before one travels? If one can show proof of vaccination, that seems very likely to me. I'm not sure if concert venues will have a bouncer out front checking barcodes on people's phones to make sure they've been vaccinated. But that is also a possibility, I think.
1: That's David Stutter, professor of medicine and law at Stanford University, telling us about the idea of vaccine passports. Professor, thank you very much. Nice
2: to talk with you, eh?
1: California's push to reopen schools got a shove from Governor Gavin Newsom today. He's pushing in a couple of billion bucks to districts that will open for the littlest learners by April 1st. Now, while that might work in many areas of the state, LAUSD is an entirely different situation altogether. Coming up, we'll hear if showing LA the money will get those double doors open. That's the next one. Take two. Continue. Stay with us.
0: An unexpected story out of the so-called Hot Labor Summer, the club that reopened as the only unionized strip club in the U.S. We just had a lot of love for each other. And we solidified that the only way we're going to be able to do something is if we organize together. The strippers behind the headlines and the secret and messy work of unionizing their club. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpecc.org. I'm Ian Martinez. As the momentum builds to reopen schools in California, education experts say they're concerned achievement gaps between students are widening. As Cap Radio's Pauline Bartoloni reports, English language learners will be among the students who struggle the most to get back in sync with their peers.
0: Luther Burbank High School teacher Larry Ferlazo is trying to make the best of Zoom school. We're going to continue to learn about the transcontinental railroad. He's using interactive quizzes to teach history and basic English to non-native speaking students in the South Sacramento neighborhood. Okay, one minute to sign up. The families of Ferlazo students come from all over the world. Afghanistan, Central America, Vietnam, the Pacific Islands. It's hard to connect with them through a computer. While he teaches them the word available, almost all of the students have their cameras off. Do you have any time available today to study English after school? No, I do not have time available to study English. I'm very busy. His students are very busy. Emily Carrillo is a senior, and her family came here three and a half years ago from Mexico. She works part-time at a grocery store, in addition to going to high school. She said it's harder to learn English at a distance. When we were at school, we kind of communicate more with our classmates. And this year, during the pandemic, we don't even talk sometimes. But it's not just the technical glitches and physical distance getting in the way of learning. Verlazzo says some kids have trouble just showing up to class.
2: There are the distractions at home. Many of our students are having to take care and assist younger siblings. A fair number of our students are also having to work nearly full time to help their families during this recession.
0: Then, of course, there's the virus itself.
2: There's a case In my class, at least every week, I have students who tell me that they or their family members are suffering from COVID-19.
0: Recent research out of Stanford University suggests all these hardships may be setting California's English language learning students back more than their peers this year. Heather Huff of Policy Analysis for California Education says the younger kids especially are learning less.
4: In the fifth grade, our research shows that students learning English are about 30 percent behind where they would be in a normal year in English language arts, compared to 10 percent for students that are not learning English.
0: Huff says the learning gap is directly tied to the different supports kids have at home.
4: In some families, you know, students have full time tutors or even a credentialed teacher who's at home supporting their learning, or a parent who doesn't work who's supporting their learning full-time. And then on the other end of the continuum, we have families where perhaps there isn't an adult at home during the day at all, because all adults in the family are out working multiple jobs.
0: English learning students are almost a fifth of California's public school population, as the legislature and the governor hash out how to reopen schools, many say summer school may be in the cards, but it has to be engaging um, to kids. Sabah, can we see your niece? Yeah. Sabah, can we see- For Lazo, is trying to do that until Sacramento City schools reopen. The youngest kids could go back in early April, but these high schoolers might not see each other again until May, and only if the COVID threat level goes down in the county.
5: We don't want to come.
0: Uh, okay. In Sacramento, I'm Pauline Bartoloni. <laughs>
1: Earlier today, Governor Gavin Newsom outlined a plan to get California's kids back into the classroom in April. Now, it stems from a deal that was hammered out with state legislators over the weekend to provide $2 billion to districts that reopen in-person learning for students in transitional kindergarten through second grade by April 1st. Plus, the state will provide more vaccine doses for teachers and staff. Now, to get a sense of what this means for Los Angeles area schools, including the largest district, LA Unified, we have with us KP, ECC education reporter Kyle Stokes. Kyle, good to have you back. Hello, A. All right. First off, uh, about that two billion bucks. Uh, in order for schools to get that money, what do they need to do?
5: Yeah. So that two billion dollars is incentive money. This is this entire package is is you could think of it as more carrot than stick but in order to get to that money uh, schools would have to reopen um, essentially um, very very soon is, is when schools could open under the under this deal um, even in counties that are in the purple tier the most restrictive the most serious of the state's coronavirus monitoring system the, the deal would call for schools to open uh, grades kindergarten through second grade by April 1st in order to get access to the full share of that $2 billion. And for every day thereafter, up until May 15th, the, the school's potential share of, of that money would go down if they hadn't reopened by that point. Um, and also as a condition of accepting this money, um, schools would have to, under this deal that's been hashed out by the, the, the governor and the and legislative leaders, they would have to agree to open elementary schools completely uh, whenever their county drops out out of the the purple tier and into the less serious red tier. Um, And in addition, at that point where you fall from the purple to the red tier, uh, middle schools and high schools would have to open up by one grade, uh, at least one full grade in each of those different levels. And uh, with Governor Newsom sort of hinting today that um, most of the state's students could be out of that most restrictive purple tier and back down living in a county in the red tier, Within what he said was the next couple of weeks. Um, If this deal is adopted by the legislature, they'd have to do that this week. If this deal is accepted at the local level, which is a big question mark, it's conceivable that a lot of of students in elementary schools across Southern California, many of which are still in distance learning mode entirely, uh, they could be back on campus by by April 1st. But again, there's a lot of ifs along the way.
1: Yeah. Okay, so let's say a, a school opens in time to get their share of that reopening money. What what is that money supposed to pay for?
5: Yeah, So that $2 billion is uh, that is the direct incentive for this that would pay for safety measures, um, things like personal protective equipment, ventilation, uh, ventilation, uh, mitigation issues, um, you know, making sure that there's enough physical distancing in schools and, and addressing direct issues of health and safety, all of the things that you would need if you were trying to incentivize schools to to open up in person. So goes the thought. Um, but in addition to that money, the package also includes the other part of that six point billion is a bunch of money to help address learning loss that would be uh, distributed based on need, basically, to to students uh, that are uh, considered at. At the most risk, it would it would go out basically by the the local control funding formula, which accounts for this already, but with some additional weights for things like homeless students. Um, and, and this money would pay for a lot. Um, it would be, it would basically give schools the flexibility to institute a number of unusual programs um, in order to uh, address the issues of learning loss, the issues for students who are not doing well under distance learning. Among them is is we've. Been hearing about this idea for a long time. Extending the school year, uh, either lengthening the current school year or starting the next school year early. I know LAUSD. That's sort of an idea that's on the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, but and that that is one of the things. But it's also things like additional tutoring and one-on-one supports. Um, there's a focus, as we just heard that story about English learner proficiency yeah. um, and, and uh, support for for credit deficient. Students, people who might be thrown off track for for graduating high school on time, uh, support for those students is is one of the things that that money could potentially pay for.
1: So, Kyle, how are we supposed to read this? I mean, is the state forcing schools to reopen in a way by saying, "Look, there's all this money here, but if you wait, there's less money"?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the sort of stick that's implied. <laughs> I thought in there, there was a there little a stick things... there,
1: Kyle. I thought there was some stick there. There,
5: there, there is, um, but the the. There, it's it's a very kind of soft stick. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it depends on how badly they want that money. Uh, you know, the the, the the deal does not um, do things that some local unions like, for example, United Teachers Los Angeles has called for, uh, United Teachers Los Angeles. And by the way, LAUSD Superintendent Austin Butner has said they want all uh, school staff to be vaccinated before they reopen a campus. Um, and uh, this deal does not include that as a condition. Um, Schools you know local unions would still you know have to be bargaining with their with their uh with their school districts um and and get districts would have to secure the union sign off in order for this to open so there's there's no forcing here um it's a lot of money that i think school districts are you know going to be reticent to leave on the table um but uh but it's so i mean there's there's an incentive there <laughs> but but forcing might be not the right word
1: now okay one big win for LAUSD is the state to set aside 25 5,000 COVID-19 vaccinations over the next two weeks for its employees. How big of a game changer could that be?
5: Yeah. And as I as I note that, uh, you know, the, about how LAUSD, you know, everyone of the leadership of LAUSD has has hung their hat on vaccines. It was interesting because just last week, Superintendent Buechner, uh really issued a, a very direct statement saying that if you want to uh, criticize us for not reopening, give us the vaccines. You know, Long Beach is doing it. We can do it. We could reopen uh, elementary schools with twenty five thousand vaccines. Um, that would be enough. To get uh, of 250,000 is what Butner said that 25,000 vaccines would be enough to get 250,000 students back into classrooms. So it's a big deal. Um, but as UTLA's president noted even last week, vaccines are not the full story. The two sides are still negotiating neg- uh, over um, health and safety protocols, and and, uh, and and there also is this question of at what point. Is uh, is LA going to be ready um, from a community transmission perspective? Yeah. The union has said we don't want to, which I think is interesting in the in the context of this. State legislative deal, the UTLA doesn't want schools going back in person until LA County has dropped out of the purple tier. That's not something that's contemplated by the deal at the statewide level. Um, so, and, and I think it's going to be one of those other points of of uh, discussion um, in the negotiations, which are taking place this week. UTLA is is set to take this member wide vote the vote of the membership um, where it's I think most members are expected to to voice support for the leadership and saying don't rush the reopening. Uh, so that's that's going to be playing out at the local level here. Even as this uh, this new incentive program at the state level is is coming out, but the the vaccine news to be, to your original question is is a game changer. That's yeah. what what Superintendent Butner called it.
1: That's KPCC Education Reporter Kyle Softstick Stokes. Kyle, thanks a <laughs> oh, lot.
5: Boy, oh dear. Yes, thank you. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, we've been talking a lot about schools lately, but uh, you know as well as I do that as the months go on, we're going to get closer to summer. And that means hotter temperatures. That also means bigger fire danger. But there is a plan that some have been using, and it includes bananas, to try and soak down and tamp down any fire season. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
2: Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to L.A., a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment.
0: it's an Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened.
2: In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. Listen to Revival House on How to L.A. wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and available most places where you get your podcasts. Sammy I mean, Martinez, the last four years of fire in California have left us all scrambling for solutions such as trying to figure out how to do more prescribed burns. But what if I told you there was a potential fruit based solution? That's right. Fruit based that could possibly help save some of our communities. KPCC's science reporter Jacob Margolis has more. I get a lot of crazy pitches, especially when wildfire season
4: gets going. And back in October, a reputable university reached out saying, hey, we've got a professor who has a unique idea on how to use tropical fruit trees to possibly stop fires burning through our grassy hills. I said, that's bananas. And they said, exactly. And I confirmed, indeed, this professor was talking about covering our brown hills with waves of emerald green banana plants, to stop fires which sounds absolutely nuts so of course i had to talk to him we met up at a housing development in irvine that nearly burned back in october the hills around the homes still charred so this landscape what i would envision doing all the way from literally the boundary of these houses up to the ridge that's above us i would envision a banana orchard Bharath Raghavan is a fruit enthusiast and professor of engineering at USC. He says if banana trees had been planted, it could have potentially slowed down the fire and given firefighters even more time to respond. We would have seen the fire come over the ridge, and it would have been mostly grass that would have been burning. It would have come up to the edge of our banana planting, and probably the first row of bananas would have been singed, but they wouldn't have caught fire because they don't catch fire easily. That's a key reason to why he's suggesting banana trees. Think about when you use banana leaves to cook things. Because of the moisture in them, they mostly steam rather than burn. Having hundreds of yards of moist plants around a housing development or homes could change fire behavior in our favor. To vet the idea, I reached out to a bunch of fire experts, and to be honest, every single one of them cocked their heads and said, huh? And then, oh, okay, I kind of get it. The
2: idea of irrigating Planting non-flammable plants like bananas is a great idea.
4: David Bowman is a professor of fire science and pyrogeography at the University of Tasmania, and he says the concept Raghavan is building on isn't new. It's something called a green firebreak, where you plant a lot of moist vegetation that fire has trouble burning. It could be banana trees, succulents, or something else with high water content. And Bowman says if we're inventive, we could figure out other green firebreak options as well.
1: If this is
2: done well, we could create the most beautiful fireproof interfaces where parks and gardens and orchards and ponds and biodiversity and, you know, really do it well. But it's going to be designed. It's not going to be
4: wild. Bowman says there's been ongoing research in China about the effectiveness of different plants as green fire breaks for some time. But I wondered if any fire officials here had any thoughts about the idea. So I reached out to Cal Fire.
1: Not to say that it wouldn't work, but uh, I do see some flaws in it.
4: Battalion Chief John Heggie brought up a number of concerns, like how well do banana trees grow in California? Well, it turns out some varieties do pretty good, but occasional frost is a concern. Don't they use a lot of water? Yes, and that is a major barrier. However, Raghavan advocates for recycled water, which is widely available. And Heggy brought up the fact that those ideal, always watered, well-kept banana orchards will need to be kept up long term. Otherwise, they could end up burning like the avocado orchards he's seen.
1: Avocado groves typically are very resistant to stopping fires. But when they're not watered or there's an error in the irrigation and some of the trees die, then they become a fire source as opposed to a fire uh, suppressant.
4: While bananas could be a decent option for some fires, they're not going to slow down or stop everything that comes through. The extreme fires we're now experiencing because of climate change have been turned up to 12. David Bowman said he even saw a banana orchard burn during some of the worst ever wildfires in Australia's history. Raghavan agreed with the concerns, but said that we need to consider new options, especially in the face of our climate emergency. We're seeing extreme fires now Four years in a row across the state. Something's going to give. Do people move? Do we accept that, you know, it's just evacuation season in the fall? Bright green bananas on the hillside are going to look far nicer than charred hills. Raghavan's next step? He and his colleagues are trying to set up a test plot to put the idea to work in real life. Covering science, I'm Jacob
1: Margolis. If you missed any part of Take 2, just head to wherever you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take 2 is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.